Welcome to Convictions, the podcast. Um, the title of this sermon this morning is, is called Good Versus Evil. Uh, so I want to open in prayer and then we'll jump right in. So, dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for the opportunity to just come together as a family of believers today in your house, Lord God. God, we ask you, we, we have felt your spirit in this service already today, God, and we just ask you to continue to guide everything that's done, God. Get my nerves out of the way, Lord, and just uh, speak to this congregation what you would have them hear, God, to, to be equipped to carry out your will in their lives, Lord. God, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, when I think of a really epic book or movie, what usually makes it epic is a battle between someone very good and someone very evil. So for example, when I think of the concept of good versus evil, I immediately get pictures in my head of Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader dueling, or Simba and Scar, or Rocky and Ivan Drago. Um, I mean, I remember as a kid watching Rocky Four, and spoiler alert if you haven't seen it yet, um, you're a little behind, but how much more evil could you get than watching Apollo Creed getting pummeled and then hearing Ivan Drago say those infamous words, if he dies, he dies. That just really angered me as a kid. Um, so movies pull out all the stops, and they do everything they can to make these final battles the most suspenseful and explosive moment possible. And the greater the contrast between the hero and the villain, the, the more good the hero is and the more evil the villain is, then the higher the stakes are during their final showdown. But you know what's cool is that the Bible has the best of these stories. So there are two types of Christians out there. There are those who never think about spiritual warfare. And then there are those who give Satan credit for everything. Now, if I'm honest, my natural inclination is to the first group. A lot of times I don't uh, automatically think about our spiritual enemies, about Satan and his demons. But the Bible makes it clear that these beings are very real and that we're fighting them throughout our entire lives. Ephesians chapter 6 says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Now that verse makes someone like me squirm a little bit, not because I'm scared, because I know who wins, and I know that I'm on his side. But it's a sobering reminder that there are dark forces behind so many things in this world. That verse calls them authorities and rulers and cosmic powers. And that's some very descriptive language to say that there's something going on behind the scenes. Something that we cannot see and that we're not naturally aware of. So knowing this, how do we fight these things? How do we fight something that we don't see, that we're not always conscious of. Now there's tons of passages in the Bible that equip us for spiritual warfare. Ephesians 6 that I just read from uh, is a lot of people's go-to passage on this topic. It's the passage that talks about the armor of God. And it goes into a ton of detail about what gear you need to fight your enemy. And you could do an entire series of sermons uh, on that topic. But today I want to look at a specific example of spiritual warfare that we find in the Bible and what weapons were used to fight this battle. So in Scripture, we have exorcisms, we have angelic battles, 
at the very beginning of Scripture, we have the temptation in the Garden of Eden, and then at the very end of Scripture, we get the ultimate defeat of Satan. And all of these are epic battles between good and evil, and ultimately the winner of each of these is God. But at one point, while Jesus was living as one of us, as a human being, we see a showdown. It's a monumental time of spiritual warfare, a time where Jesus comes face to face with the God of this age, the adversary himself, Satan. Now see, Jesus' life on earth is a wonderful example of how to live within the will of God. So I want to break down this passage today and see what methods Jesus used to fight ultimate evil so that we have some examples of how we can fight uh, Satan and his demons in our lives. So if you would, turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, and we'll start looking at this passage. I'll give you just a second to do that. So for a little bit of context, Jesus had just been baptized. Um, he had literally been declared to be the Messiah by God the Father in heaven. Uh, the, the passage on his baptism says that after he came out of the waters, the heavens were open, and he saw God's Spirit descending like a dove and resting upon him. And then God the Father said that this was his beloved Son in whom he was well pleased. I mean, we get a picture there at Jesus' baptism of all three persons of the Trinity. We see God the Father's voice, we see God the Son in the water, and then we see the Holy Spirit coming down uh, like a dove. And that's a beautiful picture. I mean, the long-awaited Savior of the world, the ultimate perfect and good person had arrived, and God was lifting him up and preparing him for his mission. So, knowing how great of an event Jesus' baptism was, uh, there are very few things that would make the enemy more worked up than that. I can think of one for sure, and that's probably Jesus rising from the grave like Grace just sang about, but that comes a little bit later in the story. So after that baptism, Jesus is led by God into the wilderness in a state of fasting to prepare to begin his public ministry. And that's when this battle occurred. And it's important to remember at this point that Jesus was also human. See, Satan knew he had God in a mortal state, in a tired and hungry and weakened state. And if he could cause Jesus to give in to temptation at this point, the whole plan of Jesus being our perfect sacrifice would be over. At this showdown between God and Satan on the outskirts of Galilee, the fate of our universe hung in the balance. So, with all that set up in mind, let's look at how this fight transpired. Let's read uh, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. And now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you 
if you will fall down and worship me. But then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. So Jesus goes into the wilderness to fight Satan and to seek God. And while he's there, Satan tries several tactics to take him down or cause him to compromise. And Jesus responds to each one with scripture until eventually he wins. It's a really neat and kind of a mysterious story. If you're like me, you have a lot of questions about what this looked like. Did Satan just look like a, a guy? Did, was Satan some type of monster? Uh, just, I, I have all these questions about exactly how this went down. But um, the focus of today is on the practical side of this. Uh, on the ways that we can apply this passage in our own lives. So it's important to remember that this passage does not cover every way that Satan will attack you, and it also does not cover every way that you can fight back. But we can at least glean a few pieces of advice for when we face attacks from the enemy. So we talked earlier about some different uh, epic battles of good and evil that we, we think of, um, and a lot of times when we picture an epic battle of good and evil like the ones we talked about, we expect this massive explosion of violence. But with this battle, it's much more a battle of the will and of the mind. It was a battle in which Jesus used his spiritual disciplines to fight the enemy. So, like Jesus, like a soldier is disciplined for war, we must discipline ourselves with spiritual practices. When the enemy attacks, we can put our spiritual disciplines to good use. So as we work our way through this passage, I want you, if you're taking notes, to write one column that says attacks from the enemy and another column that says spiritual disciplines. So let's go back to this passage uh, and let's read verse 1 again. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So as this passage begins, we see that Jesus is in communication with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness. So what are some good spiritual disciplines we can see here? The first discipline we see is that Jesus is withdrawing to a place of silence and solitude in prayer. So the first discipline we can practice to fight our enemy and to draw closer to God is the discipline of silence, solitude, and prayer. So from verse 1, we know that Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. Now, if you want to get away from everyone, what better place is there to go than a desert wilderness? Uh, it's not exactly a place that people go to congregate. People usually like to gather in places with uh, shelter, with food, and with safety. And Jesus would have had none of those things in the wilderness. But this is a pattern we see in Jesus' life. He often withdraws away from people to pray. And that's what tells us that this was a consistent discipline that Jesus used. Uh, let's look at some other examples of this. Matthew chapter 14, verse 23 says, And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And now when evening came, he was alone there. So this verse tells us that Jesus had crowds following him, um, but, but he still felt the need to go away up on a mountain completely by himself and pray. Uh, in Mark chapter 1, verse 35, it says, Now in the morning... Having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. So once again, we see Jesus waking up long before anyone else would be awake, and he goes out off alone, and he prays. Luke chapter 4, verse 42 says, Now when it was day, he departed 
and went into a deserted place, and the crowd sought him and came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. So in this passage, Jesus goes off by himself to pray, but the people don't think he should be doing that. They, they want to keep him around longer. They want to hear more teaching. They want to get more healing. Uh, but still yet, Jesus saw the need to go away on his own and pray. So what are some benefits of, of us practicing this? Well, one is that prayer is powerful, but often uh, we're too distracted to use it to its full potential. So I struggle significantly with this. There are so many things in the world right now that are distractions between the Internet and our phones, our to-do lists, um, TV. It's all, a lot of it's just time wasters. And so uh, we get distracted by those things, and then often when we do take time to pray, it's in a quick moment, uh, and there's either a ton of background noise or um, I'm guilty of doing this a lot. I'll, I'll think to pray right before I'm falling asleep, and then I'm dozing off as I'm praying. Um, but that's not how Jesus showed us to pray by example or by direct teaching. Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, in, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 6, Jesus said, But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So Jesus tells us to withdraw from others, shut the door, and pray in secret. Take the time away from distractions and focus on him. And a lot of times, like in Luke uh, chapter 4 that I just read from a second ago, people will perceive this as wasting valuable time. Um, that, in that story, the crowd came to him and was trying to keep him from leaving. Uh, but despite pressure from other people to keep traveling and keep teaching, Jesus still saw the need to withdraw and be alone and talk with his father. So what we can take from that is don't ever think you're wasting time when you're praying. And when at all possible, the most effective prayers will be done in a place of silence and solitude. Now, um, another benefit of getting away to silence and solitude is that it can make us get rest and rejuvenate. Uh, setting aside alone time with God is beneficial for the same reasons that God made the Sabbath, to give us some rest. Sometimes we can be so busy doing things, even ministry-based things, that the rest and alone time with God is neglected. Sometimes it's okay to say no to some things so that you have a moment to get away and reflect on God's will and worship him. If God himself needs rest, then I think we probably do too. So let's continue on. Let's read verse 2 uh, together here. It says, And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. So while Jesus was in the wilderness spending alone time with God, he also spends 40 long days fasting. So the second spiritual discipline we're going to look at today is fasting. So to go hand in hand with prayer, Jesus is using fasting in this passage. Fasting is a very much overlooked uh, practice or it's not practiced at all in our culture today. But from early on in the Bible, it is expected. Fasting is abstaining uh, from something, most often food, for spiritual benefit. So why do we think it's not practiced a lot today? I honestly think uh, that it's just because on the surface it seems like a really strange thing to do. Like we have to have food uh, to survive. That's one of our basic needs. And besides that, who wants to skip a meal? Beyond survival, it's just fun to eat. You can probably tell that I enjoy it a little bit too much. But um, there is a reason for fasting. Fasting is a way to deny yourself and express devotion to God. And often in scripture, it's written alongside prayer 
as if they should go hand in hand. We see it all throughout the Old Testament laws. We see the prophets practicing it when praying. And then all throughout Acts, we see examples of prayer and fasting. And we see that prayer works better when done simultaneously with fasting. Uh, we see a story in Mark 9, 29, where the disciples are unable to cast this demon out of this little boy. And uh, they try and try. And then the father finally comes to Jesus and, and asks him to help. And Jesus casts out the demon. But then the disciples come up to him and they say, I don't, I don't get it. Why couldn't we cast this demon out? How, how come, what, what were we doing wrong? And Jesus said that that type of demon could only be cast out by prayer and fasting. So there's power in prayer and there's even more power when it's paired alongside fasting. You know, I heard a story growing up about my great-grandmother that uh, I believe that she had shingles at one point and was very, um, very much, uh, you know, just in bed, in a lot of pain, and that kind of thing. And they had had a youth camp um, through their church, and uh, they took the, the kids took it upon themselves to skip lunch one day and just pray about that situation. And the, I believe, Robin could probably tell me more, but I believe it was like the next day she had no signs of shingles anymore. Um, she felt completely healed and actually came to visit the kids at the camp. So there is power in fasting. If you're, if you're struggling in, in your prayer life, um, pair up fasting with it. Um, so like I said before, food is a primary need for us to survive. So when we abstain from food for a while in prayer to God, we are showing him that he is our ultimate source of sustenance, that nothing is more important than God is, that no matter how much I need lunch or no matter how much I just really want to eat lunch, replacing it with time with God is even more important. And this can look many different ways. You can fast from one meal a day. You can fast from a certain food. Kelsey and I last summer uh, fasted from added sugars, which was painful but very beneficial. Um, and, and so you can fast from food for a day. You can fast for an extended period of time. We don't know exactly uh, the methods that Jesus was using in his 40-day fast, but we know that he was not eating much food at all for 40 long days and nights. So, if you want to practice fasting, there are many ways that it can look, but the point is making sure that the heart behind it is a focus on God. Beyond food, this concept can apply to other things. I have uh, fasted from social media in the past, for example. If there's something that you're beginning to put too much focus on, abstain from it for a while, and do that with the purpose of replacing it with more of God. If you can't imagine fasting from a certain thing, chances are that might be what you need to fast from. So there is power in fasting, and we definitely should practice it more than we do. And this is how Jesus was discerning the will of God. He withdrew to the quiet in prayer, and he fasted for 40 days. And those were the first two disciplines that prepared him for the enemy. But when we are drawing closer to God, and when we are preparing for battle, then we should not be surprised when the attacks come. And that's what happened next. Satan showed up. So let's read verses 3 through 7 uh, again. Um, it says, now when the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. 
But Jesus said to him, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. So attack number one that we see in this passage from, from Satan is that he attacks us in our weakness with doubts. So Jesus was off alone, he was in prayer, and he was hungry when Satan attacked. And just to remind you, Jesus was always in tune with God's will. Now remember, right before this story, Jesus had been baptized and he heard the voice of God say that he was God's beloved son. However, twice in this passage, in verses 3 and 6, Satan starts his temptation by saying, if you are the son of God, then you can do this. This is how Satan works. If we are strong and we are in line with what God would want us to do, Satan will begin to plant doubts. Like, how awesome was it, um, was Jesus' baptism? Once again, like I said, we see all three persons of God in that moment in a, in a physical way. And yet when Jesus was off alone with his thoughts, Satan showed up and attacked him in the quiet with doubts. Like, he heard God say, you are my beloved son, but off alone in the quiet, Satan says, if you really are God's son, then you should do this. He did the same thing with Eve. Uh, she knew that God said she would die if she ate of the tree, yet when Satan showed up, he asked, did God really say you would die? So for us, we need to see these attacks coming, like Jesus did. We need to fight back with truths from Scripture that we know about God. In my life, this attack uh, comes anytime I'm asked to speak. I, uh, I can hear thoughts saying, you know, someone else could do that a lot better than you. Um, your presentation's lacking. You probably lose their attention. Uh, you're, you're really just not that good at this. Uh, but I have to remind myself of stories in the Bible, like uh, Moses. He, he didn't feel like he could speak before Pharaoh, and yet God used him anyway. We hear about Paul, who says he didn't come with eloquence of speech, but with the power of the gospel. And so I know when I'm up here, it's not me doing any of this work. It's this word of God right here. So I don't have to rely on myself and my ability. And I have to remind Satan of that to get him to leave. Another example, if Satan says to you, are you sure you're saved? You remind him that Romans tells you, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is Christ Jesus our Lord. If Satan comes to you and says, are you sure that heaven exists, or is this all just, just a big joke? You remind him that Jesus says, in my Father's house there are many dwelling places, and if it were not true, I wouldn't have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you. Satan knows our weaknesses, but we know God. And the more we know God, the more Satan's attacks fail. Beyond planning doubts, Satan tempted Jesus with empty promises. So that's attack number two. Um, Satan comes at us with empty promises and temptations. So Satan knew that Jesus was physically weak due to fasting. So that's the time he chose to pounce with temptation. Uh, his first temptation in verse 3 said, Command these stones to become bread. Now, could Jesus have turned those stones to bread? Absolutely. And did Jesus want to turn those stones to bread? I guarantee you that he did. But because he was remaining disciplined and fasting to show that God ruled supreme, he refused. Satan attacked one of Jesus' primary needs, food, and he did not succeed. Jesus held fast to God. 
So next, he tempts Jesus with safety and power by telling Jesus to jump from the temple and let the angels save him. This would have shown the world the type of power that Jesus had, and it would, and it would have allowed Jesus to jump to safety from these attacks. But once again, that wasn't God's will, and Jesus called that out. And then verses 8 and 9 say, Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. So now he tempts Jesus with possessions and power. He shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world that were under Satan's control. And he says he will give them to Jesus if Jesus just bows down to him. 1 John 5.19 says, We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. So Satan has some temporary authority over the kingdoms of this earth. That's why the passage from Ephesians earlier talked about demons having rule and authority. Some of the bad things that happen in this world are just because Satan has some power. But we also learn from, from books like Job that for Satan to be allowed to do anything, he has to ask God's permission first. So ultimately, the power lies in God's hands. So when Satan was tempting Jesus with these earthly kingdoms, I have no doubt that Jesus wanted to take control of these places from Satan right then and there. And I'm sure it was tempting for Jesus in his lowly human state to just go ahead, take control of those kingdoms, and be worshipped as he deserved. Um, as John Mark Comer puts it in his book, Live No Lies, the temptation plays to the undercurrent of Jesus' heart, the desire to take his kingdom by an easier way, to get the right thing the wrong way. But Jesus would not bow to the power of Satan because the true ownership of these things belonged to Jesus already. And bowing to Satan seemed like it would give Jesus what he wanted, but really it would have been declaring Satan the winner and it would, have made, it would have made Jesus an immediate earthly king, but not in the way that it needed to be done. So Jesus, once again, did not give in. So again, weapon number two is false promises. Satan promised Jesus food, safety, and power. And often the Christian life is hard, and it seems like the world is succeeding while we are failing. But this is not the case. Don't let money, possessions, safety, or power fool you. They will not last. And remember that Jesus felt these struggles too. Hebrews tells us that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sinning. So when it comes to possessions and power, Jesus consistently reminds us that the people who are succeeding in this world through the wrong means and are flaunting their successes, they already have their reward now. That's all they're going to get. But Christians take heart, our reward is coming. Sufferings in this present age will not compare to the joys that are coming. So, remember I said another one of the temptations here was for Jesus to jump to safety. There are a lot of things in the Christian life that take you out of a place of safety. They take you out of your comfort zone. Whether it's as extreme as being called as a missionary to a hostile country, or as small as sharing the gospel with a co-worker who might reject you, we are often called out of our comfort zone. And many times Satan will get in our head and say, you don't have to do what God's calling you to do. Everything's good right now. Someone else can go to that place. Someone else can share the gospel with your coworker. These are more lies. They're empty promises. We have to be aware of those empty promises just like Jesus was. 
So when it came to these temptations, Jesus did not give in to Satan's attacks because he knew these things were lies. John 8.44 says that Satan is a liar and he is the father of lies. So not only does Satan lie, he originates lies. So knowing that Satan is a liar, we can talk about uh, his third attack. So let's read verses 6 and 7 again. Uh, it says, And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Satan's third attack is twisting scripture. So, after Satan attacked Jesus uh, with the temptation to turn the stone to bread, uh, Satan was defeated by Scripture. So then he decides to turn around and use that same weapon against Jesus. So he takes Scripture and he throws it back at Jesus. Satan quotes a psalm out of context and says that uh, Jesus should jump off the temple because the angels will protect him. After all, that's what the, the Old Testament says. Satan knows the Word of God, and he knows its power, and he tries to use it to fight against Jesus, and he does the same with us. Many people in history have claimed to use God's word in pushing their agenda, and they've convinced uh, many other people that they were right. But in fact, they're totally changing the intent of Scripture. How often do we see Satan twisting Scripture today? Whether it's prosperity preaching, or progressive Christianity, or Scripture being used for power games, or uh, when we see the emergence of different cults, we see Countless examples of Satan working through people by the misuse of God's word. But when Satan did this, he wasn't prepared for the third discipline, the power of the word of God. So if you've noticed so far, the discipline Jesus used the most in the passage was knowing how to use the word of God. Jesus knew his scriptures, and he knew them much better than Satan. When Satan tempted Jesus to turn the stones to bread, Jesus responded with, It is written... Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus' response was a quote from Deuteronomy 8.3. In other words, Jesus fought Satan with Scripture. He fought him with the Word of God. Jesus knew that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's a strong weapon to have at your disposal. For the whole showdown, it's as if every use of Scripture is another swing of that double-edged sword. See, Satan didn't seem to understand that not only could Jesus handle the weapon better than he could, but Jesus was the weapon. John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the Word of God. He not only uses the sword, but He is the sword. And Satan doesn't stand a chance against that. Now talk about an epic battle. When Satan told Jesus to jump from the temple uh, and took that psalm out of context, Jesus returned with another quote, this time from Deuteronomy 6.16. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Each time Satan attacked Jesus, Jesus responded with Scripture. And finally, after the third attack, he called Satan to run away. At Satan's final attack, when he offered for Jesus to bow before him, Jesus responds with Deuteronomy 6.13. Jesus says to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, 
and him only shall you serve. And with that statement, Satan left Jesus alone. He had been defeated. So the word of God was the most consistent weapon used in this passage. And there was great power in knowing the word of God. When Jesus was being tempted by Satan, every attack thrown back at Satan was a quote from scriptures. And Satan was ultimately defeated by the word of God himself. And that's why it's so important for us to know the Bible. We can use every inspirational quote we hear. We can follow the best preachers in the world. But if these things are not specifically from the word of God, it is a weakened attack. So we must know our Bible in context. We must read books and chapters in their entirety to fully understand the meaning. And unfortunately, when we don't do this, we give Satan and his demons the upper hand. But ultimately, when we know the word of God in a deep and life-changing way, we know Jesus. Jesus is the word. The story of Jesus in the wilderness is just a preliminary fight leading up to the ultimate defeat of Satan at the return of Jesus. And we read about this, uh, Jesus' return and Satan's defeat in Revelation 19. So I'm going to read from that passage. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flames of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So Jesus is the word of God. And in this picture from Revelation, he's arriving with a sword coming out of his mouth. And that represents that double-edged sword or the Bible. And once again, he and his words are the weapon that ultimately defeat evil. So as Christians, take comfort in this, but also take it as motivation to learn the word of God deeper than before. That's what will give us spiritual victory. So to conclude this morning, Christians, know that there is a battle being fought every day. Don't go into it unprepared. 1 Peter 5, 8 tells us, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Satan is on the prowl, and he is waiting for someone who is not alert, who is not on the lookout, so he can destroy them. He will use your weaknesses He will offer you empty promises, and he will twist the scriptures to do so. But we've got to fight back. We've got to incorporate these weapons, these disciplines into our daily lives, always ready for this battle. A discipline, by definition, cannot be just practiced on Sunday. When you think of an athlete preparing for a game or a soldier preparing for war, do you think they're going to be adequately prepared if if they just practice or run drills for one hour a week? Definitely not. The enemy is still active past Sunday morning, so we need to be disciplining ourselves all throughout our lives. So to do this, pray to your Father and do it off in the quiet and solitude so you can regroup and receive your marching orders. Fast to continue to show God that he is your king and that you are devoted to him and know the word of God because then you will know Jesus and you will be on his side when he takes out the enemy for good. So... I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. But this morning, if, if that dealt with you at all, um, 
If, if you know that you could commit to practicing more of these disciplines in your lives, then I want to invite you to come pray during this song. Um, I think that we all can, can improve in these areas. I know I can. Um, but we just have to remember that there is a battle going on that we don't see. And we have to be prepared for that. And this morning, if, if you're not a Christian, if you don't uh, know anything about any of this stuff, then I would invite you this morning to come forward and, and just invite Jesus to, to enter into your life um, and to save you, uh, because that's the most important thing right now. So um, I'm going to close that message in prayer real quick, and then we will sing. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you once again for being in your house this morning, God. Um, and we just ask you to continue to move as we sing this song, God. If you're dealing with anyone's heart, Lord, we ask uh, that, you, that you draw them to come pray this morning, God. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.